dog people and they're cat people. Occasionally they're dog and cat people, but that's an aberration and disturbance in the force. You know that. I don't want to be offensive to the cat people, but I just can't help it. Dogs uh, have masters. Cats have staff. You've heard that before. And you cat people, when you try to explain to us dog people why you love your cat, you say he's like a dog. I mean, you know that's true. I mean, whenever, you know, whenever somebody's trying to explain to you, oh, it's, it's a, this, this cat is a great cat, they usually say, you know, he's like a dog. I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be uh, upset you cat people. But you know there's something different about dogs. There's something unconditional about dogs. They, they love you unconditionally. And there's nothing like being greeted by a dog when you come home. I mean, your dog just thinks you are a rock star, right? I mean, you come in the door and, and it, it brings you, you know, the, uh, the area rug from the front. You know, and, and, and as a prize for you or whatever, it can pick up and, and, just, you know, and just slobbers all over you as if to say, I'm just so glad you're home, so glad you're home. I love this prayer. I've heard, you've probably heard this prayer before. Lord, make me the person my dog thinks I am. <laughs> make me the person my dog thinks I am. That, that resonates with all of us, right? I mean, we, we know we're not there yet, and we know how great it is to be considered, you know, unconditionally, a, a, a person I have yet to become. And, and, and so often in the church, we lapse into something. We lapse into thinking that we're going to become the person our dogs think we are by just trying harder. And, you know, Jesus hammered that. He described that kind of mindset, you know, the, the moralistic mindset. That, that we're going to become a better version of ourselves by just trying harder. He called that, that an oppressive kind of yoke. It's the very message that Jesus came to, 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 to slam, to shatter, to set aside. The faith that is grace-based Right, unmerited favor, unconditional regard. Your dog just coming to the door, no matter what kind of day, no matter what you did to him this morning, embracing you again. That kind of picture of grace, it so often leaks out of our lives and our message and the church, even the church. More often than not, when, when someone's had a bad experience, in the church and, and maybe have ventured back in here. When, when I hear their story, it's usually a story uh, where they've, they've felt burned or shamed or guilted by moralism. Just try harder. It's brutal. You're trying hard. We, we don't need to try harder. <laughs> we need we need. To be people who, who know that, that God is at work in every aspect of our lives. And, and we need to be able to make sense of life 
from here forward by, by integrating even the difficult experiences that we've had so that we learn and we grow and we continue to grow. Today, as we, we, we look at the commitments that make us thrive as individuals and as a church, I'd like us to look at Ephesians because Ephesians is about small groups. The book of Ephesians is about small groups. How groups help us to make sense of our stories. To make sense of our stories. You say, I've never heard that Ephesians is about, is about small groups. Well, you're going to see. You're going to see. Because the early church was a collection of small groups. And so when Paul is speaking to the early church, when he's speaking to these different churches, he's speaking to house churches. And when he says you in there, we as Americans think me, right? We think me. We think like cats with our staff, right? But, but, but what, what Paul is saying is you as a collective you. And you'll see as we turn and look at how groups help us to make sense of our story. Now sometimes, uh, now, sometimes groups can take us in, an, in a direction that's really unhealthy. And it's called groupthink. And what groupthink is, groupthink is, is like when you put the group and the experience of the group and the unity of the group above the truth. Truth down here, group unity up here. All right, unity, purity. We are, as Americans, infected by this groupthink. Here's a picture of it. it it's as if um, you know, you're, you're, you're standing there and someone uh, brings up somebody else who's not present. All right? Now, whenever that happens, you have a choice, right? You, you, can, you can make it really awkward and say nothing or just say, you know, I think, or defend the person who's not there. Or you can just kind of laugh and shrug your shoulders and nod and, and be in agreement and do nothing. I, I know the temptation, just like you do. And it, it's cowardice. Let's just name it. It's cowardice. Because when someone's not there and someone's being torn down and they're not there to defend themselves, that's the way of the coward. But a lot of times what we do is, in, in order to preserve the unity and in order to uh, avoid being, uh, you know, entering into an awkward moment, we just we do nothing. And we just kind of nod and laugh or whatever it is. That's a picture of groupthink. And groupthink, uh, it, it affects and infects all different kinds of thinking. But groups can also be, when they're not oriented to themselves, when they're oriented to the truth, groups can be one of the most powerful ways, one of the most powerful tools that God uses to help you make sense of your story. So that you're not just trying harder, but you're integrating the pain and the problems and the past. You're integrating it in a way that makes sense of it, in a way that shows God's redemptive power in your life. So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 4 about the new life, starting with verse 17. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Think about that for a minute. They're walking in the futility of their minds, their past, their problems, 
their pain is disintegrated. It's just hanging out there. They haven't made sense of it. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former uh, manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That doesn't sound like just trying harder. It's just saying you've been renewed. Now, embrace it by faith. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. See, permission to be angry, but do not sin. All right, never mind. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Just to capture the essence of what we're talking about this morning, I I thought of this story, um, the story of, of a woman who smiled at her daughter, and her daughter said, Mom, what's the matter? And she said, what? What do you mean? She said, your eyes are not smiling. Now, isn't it true that often we're wearing something and out of the mouth of babes, they see past it. They see past it. And they see that there's something that is amiss, something that is disintegrated, that we're not whole, that our outside is not like the inside, that that, that there's something about our outside that, that gives us a little hint or betrays the fact that there's something that is not right. The past, the problems, the pain have not been integrated in a way that makes sense of our stories. So what is it that needs to be integrated then? Well, our past, our problems, our pain, 
our mess needs to be part of our message. Have you heard that before? Your mess needs to be part of your message. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Life is lived forwards and understood backwards. And so first, before we understand how, how groups help us with that, we have to understand what is it that we're trying to, how are we people of integrity? How are we trying on this new life? How do we, how, what is it that needs to happen in, in each one of us? What we need to incorporate and redeem the moments of our past. We need to examine what's going on and understand our stories, not just in terms of the highs, but also in terms of the lows. One of the most amazing pictures of what I'm talking about uh, was, uh, w- was a movie called Inside Out by, by Pixar. I hope you all have seen that. I want to help you r- recall it, that, that there's, there's, there's a little girl, and uh, she has uh, all these, these different emotions, as we do, and, and the picture of the emotions that are going on inside her mind are these cartoon figures, and, and two in particular, joy and sadness. And so they represent different aspects of, of her life and her past uh, through these, these globes that, that are memories. And, and there are certain memories that are really, really important, and they call them core memories. And each of these, these core memories, there are only about six of them. They're really the defining part of her life. They define her story. They define really who she is. They're points of reference for her, but they also are so important because it really represents just just her sense of identity, her core memories. One of the pivotal moments in in this story is when uh, these, these happy core memories, these simple childhood memories, begin to change because sadness, the character sadness, who's just hilarious, I mean, she, she reaches out and, and you realize something's happening, all right? And you can see the girl on the screen and what's going on with her, and she's telling the story how she had moved from one place to another, and she's telling the story to her class, and she's talking about how happy she was back where she was, and then all of a sudden she starts to realize that that happy core memory is now getting bitter and sad because she's moved. She can no longer play hockey. She's now down further south. And, and, and so they look and they realize that sadness has touched one of these core memories. And it looks sort of like a marble. It's, it's gold, and, and then it begins to, to, to turn blue. And, and then, it, it, then the next pivotal moment is when you realize that how important it is for this girl that, that her core memories, that her identity, that her point of reference, that her story is an incorporation of both the happy and the sad that she begins to, to make sense of what's happy and what's sad. And so uh, a lot of times we, we, we think of it like uh, we're, we're trying, to, we're trying to, 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 to block or protect ourselves from sadness, block or protect ourselves from pain and problems and our past. Hide and bury those things that are difficult for us. But instead, what is so, so critical for each one of us is that we learn to make sense of the past and the problems and the pain in terms of what God is about, what he's doing, 
when he interrupted you that time and you thought you had the perfect plan and then it, it, there was this detour. What was he about? What was he doing? You see, if we don't make sense of that, it's just this, this thing that's hanging out there. It's flapping out there. It's something that, that, that we may feel shame about. It's something that we may continue to feel hurt about. And, and, and how difficult it is to make sense of your story if you don't examine it in light of the new life that God is in the redemption business. He's in the business of taking those old pieces and making sense of them. That's what he does. That's what the cross is. We are people who are to take up our cross. And in some ways, it's simply to say, God is always doing something. And even and especially in the past and the pain and the problems of our lives. Now, that's what's happening in verses 17 through 24. That's what's happening. The Gentiles, the pagans, people who are living life far from God, are disintegrated. And so it's like, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. They're just casting care to the wind, not even thinking about it. But what, what the Christian is called to do is to face reality. Let me, let me read to you from... Uh, a book by uh, M. Scott Peck. Scott Peck, a, uh, a physician, wrote a couple of books. One called The Road Less Traveled, very famous book. Another one, lesser known, but just as good, called uh, A Different Drum. He said, Emotional sickness is avoiding reality at any cost. Emotional sickness is avoiding reality at any cost. Emotional health is facing reality at any cost. Think of it like this. You and I, we love self-deprecating humor, right? There's something healthy about it. You know, when someone's kidding around, when they're being honest and open about their foibles or, or something like that, when they're kidding around about it, there's something very healthy about that. It's facing reality, but it's saying that I'm not going to let this thing define me, right? Your past, your problems, your pain. They will define you if you don't deal with it, if you don't learn what they mean, if you don't learn what God was about. You know, ask any, now, now maybe girls are different, uh, but, but I know that for guys, if you ask them about that scar, right? Ask them about that scar, it's like, yeah, they'll kind of puff their chest out a little bit and go, yeah, that was a chainsaw, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was, that was so cool, too. You know, and they'll tell you the story, right? A lot of times we think of scars as something that's just, just terrible, something that's shameful, something to hide. But you look at a scar, it's incredible. The body's ability to heal itself. That's not just a, it's not an open wound. It's a scar. It's where there's been tremendous healing that's taken place, right? I've got a lot of scars, a lot of scars, a lot of surgeries, a lot of dumb things I've done, usually to impress some, uh, you know, 12-year-old girl or 13-year-old girl, 14-year-old, you know, something like, or, or, hey, watch this, right? That famous last words, hey, watch this, right? Scars from uh, ill-advised things. But, but, but to tell the story is kind of like, you know, this pastor that I know who, who uh, had a really difficult childhood, really difficult. And when he tells his story, it's a story of triumph. 
He's no longer, he's not, he's not telling the story to bleed on you. He's saying, look at this scar. Look at the healing. Look at what God did. It's to face reality. It's to deal with the past and the problems and the pain. It's, it's to incorporate in that globe of what you thought was the perfect plan and to create a capacity and a complexity to your story that's able to connect with people on a different level. Otherwise, you won't. Let me say that again. It's to create a, a capacity and a complexity to life and to your story so that your story, besides someone else's story, there's a, there's a deeper and richer connection that's possible for you. But if your stories, your pain and your past and your problems are totally disconnected, if you don't have the faith that God is about something, that he's, he's already given you new life and you're supposed to be putting it on, that God is in the redemption business to take those moments and to, and, and to, to, to make that mess part of your message, then maybe you have missed what grace is all about. Your mess needs to be part of your message. Second, Groups, small groups, relationships, life on life is the way that the Christian life has been fashioned for us to live. Groups help us face reality. If facing reality is to take the past and the problems and the pain and to incorporate them so that we have a greater capacity to connect on a better and deeper level with people, to connect with God, to connect with each other. And we should embrace groups because groups help us face reality. They help us face reality. Let's take a look. In, in Peck's book, A Different Drum, he, he talks about the consequences of not facing reality. He talks about the fact that, that, that it's possible for us to live with the elephant in the room. All right? The elephant in the room. You know what that means, right? So we're sitting, in, we're sitting in, in a living room, right? And there's an elephant in the room. And it's just, it's standing there, but nobody is acknowledging it. That's what that image is all about. There's an elephant in the room. Everyone knows what everyone's not talking about. But we're politely passing the, the teacups and the saucers and, and the sugar and the cream around the legs of the elephant. Nobody's naming it. Nobody's talking about it. There are consequences to not facing reality. There are consequences to living in groups in a way that's not truthful. That's why it says, tell each other the truth. Verse 25. Tell one another the truth. Speak the truth to one another. Have your groups, have your life, have your, have, have your community based on... Not on groupthink, not on group unity, but on the truth. Scott Peck says that, that there's, there are risks to this. That, that, that in order to move from pseudo-community or false community, where we're not naming the elephants, to real community, where, those, where the greater capacity to connect lies, that we have to pass through something. We have to name the elephants. We have to risk a little bit of an experience, a little bit of chaos to go from pseudo-community to real community. 
falsehood, chaos, reality, real community. This is what the book of Ephesians is all about. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all indicative. This is who you are. This is who you are in Christ. This is the new reality. This is the new life. This is what Jesus did. This is what you're called to do. These are the ways that you should expect life change. And then verses, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are no longer in the indicative. They are in the imperative. It pivots. The book, the, the letter pivots and it says, all right, now that you know who you are, this new life that's already been affected for you now, here is what you are to do, imperative. Here is what you're to do. And he's speaking to these, these groups. One of the, one of the um, perplexing verses in the Bible I just read, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. There's been a lot of controversy and, uh, and debate about what that means. But look at the context. Context is king. Context is king when you're trying to understand the Bible. The context is life in Christ together. What would it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Verse 30. Let's read it again. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He says, fit for all again. Give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed. Together sealed. For the day of redemption. And then he goes on to say, let all bitterness. And this is, this is a team sport, people. So to grieve the Holy Spirit is to is to have an elephant in the room that you don't name. To grieve the Holy Spirit is to ignore the calling that is a, that is a together calling. The consequence is not, to not doing this. A, a, guy, a friend of mine named Paul, many years ago, he said um, his, his, he was at uh, Thanksgiving. And his grandparents, who'd been married over 50 years, you know, 54 years, let's say, his, his, his grandfather stood up and he cut off part of this bread, the butt end of the bread, and he gave it to his wife. He gave it to his wife, and he said, uh, he said, here you go, honey. And she took that bread and threw it at him, and it bounced right off his nose. And she said, for 54 years, or for whatever long they've been married, for 54 years you've been giving me the butt end of the bread. And he said, for 54 years, I've been giving you my favorite piece. You see, we can walk around for 54 years and not be dealing in reality. You say, well, Tim, what does it look like? Well, quickly, I know we're out of time, but let me, let me just finish by giving you a couple practical tools. What does it mean to be angry and not sin? How do we, ha- how do we have life together in, in the ways that I'm, I'm speaking about? Practical ways. When we speak to each other and you say something like, you did such and such, you're just pitching for a fight. You're looking for justice. You don't even know if it's true. But if you say, this is how I feel about what happened, then you're, you're saying, I'm taking respo- some responsibility here. And I'm not assuming that it's all your responsibility. That's, that's one tool. Start with the right words. Soften your startup. Distinguish between feelings and facts. Feelings aren't bad. Feelings aren't bad. They're, they're like the dashboard that says something's going on. I need to pay attention. But when you use your dashboard to communicate, 
when you use only your dashboard to communicate, then you're pitching for a fight. Finally, one last tool is simply this. It's to say, um, there are different ways of phrasing this, but when you're moving towards someone, you're, you're dealing with conflict or you need to resolve something, you need to name the elephant. You say something like this. Here's what I'm telling myself. This is how it appears to me, or this story that I'm telling myself is. And then it, it, it really just says, look, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is just how it appears. Help me understand what's going on. You see, we, we have a greater capacity to connect than we get our, give ourselves credit for. And because of the, the things in our past, the, 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 the problems that we're dealing with and the pain that we have, that, that, that it's disintegrated from our stories, we betray our lack of trust that God is always about something. And that's why, that's why I love this closing song that we're going to sing in a minute. It says this, be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently your cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Would you stand for this closing?